We're at uh, verse 12 of chapter 4. And we'll look at this section of uh, down to verse 19, the rest of chapter 4. You know, chapter 3 was kind of hairy. We had a few hard passages. Uh, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Uh, baptism now saves you. Uh, cha- verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, those who uh, have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, and so we had to sort through some of those things. But then after verse 1 of chapter 4, we were doing well. It lined out all the way uh, through uh, verse 11. Uh, as Peter talked to us about our, the sin of our previous life was long enough, we sinned long enough, we lived long enough a life of sin. And he encourages us to live according to the <coughs> will of God, even if our friends criticize us, which some will, but they'll give an account for uh, their lives. Uh, he says, the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled, sober-minded, keep loving one another, show hospitality, don't grumble, uh, use your spiritual gift to serve others. And we close with verse 11 at the end of it with the doxology, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That being uh, everything, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, dominion uh, forever and ever. And so we're on a, on a roll, we're on a, a, a nice encouraging passage, and then Peter, in the midst of our celebration of the glory of God, he uh, brings us to the suffering of Christians and of his, God's people. Uh, as we think about suffering, the evil in the world, in particular, I would say the context, suffering as a Christian right here in chapter 4 of Peter, the context of those he's writing to is more persecution for being a Christian. But I'm talking, I'm also applying that in, in other sufferings, trials that we go through, whether it be physical uh, suffering, whether it be maybe relationships that are uh, broken. Uh, and so I'm going to just think of it that way as we, as we talk. This problem of evil and the problem of suffering brings many folks to question Christianity question God, uh, the, you know, while the athe- so many atheists, this is what turns them that way. Uh, one of the renowned atheists, he died, I think, in 2010, Anthony Flew, uh, who was sort of the pioneer of the modern atheism movement. He was a little older than Hitchens, I think, and some of the guys that have been more popular lately. But uh, he had, uh, what happened, Flew was, again, the pioneer of modern atheism. His argument, he said, one should presume atheism until the evidence of a God surfaces. And so that is his, uh, was his 
uh, theme as he would debate all the Christians, who uh, anybody who would debate him. Uh, in 2004, though, at 81 years old, he, he uh, changed his position. His colleagues were upset. Uh, of course, his fellow atheists were upset. But it was through or during the time of the intelligent design emphasis. And so he, he was convinced through that intelligent that the, that the universe had to be designed by someone or something intelligent. Uh, he declared himself a deist, which was Tom, a Thomas Jefferson type deist. God started all, but he kind of walked away from it. Um, uh, he said God was. Uh, he said God was a God with power and intelligence. And he wrote a book about it in 2007. There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Uh, and of course, at 81 years old, making this change after his whole life, uh, his whole adult life. Uh, they, uh, New York Times wrote an article, said he's just gone senile. And the book that he wrote, somebody else wrote it. And he said, well, he helped me a lot, but he said, I am not senile. He says it's just the evidence became insurmountable. However, he did reject all, uh, not only did he reject his senility, he also uh, rejected any rumor that he'd become a Christian. He had not become a Christian yet. He hadn't gotten that far. And uh, shortly after, six years after he changed his position, he died. Uh, but he's still rejecting the life, uh, the life after death, a good God. He ultimately, though, just before he died, added a chapter to his book on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, as a historical fact. But uh, Flew became an atheist, he says, over the problem of suffering. He said God can't be an all-loving and good God at the same time all-powerful. How can you be all-loving, good, and powerful? And so he bought into that classical kind of objection of Christianity uh, that said essentially if God is all-good, he'd destroy evil. Uh, if God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. Evil is here, therefore God is not uh, all-good and all-powerful. And if God is not all-good and all-powerful, there is no Christianity. And that's where he ended up for all those years until he came. Um, and he would, like many, would say this is the Achilles heel, if you will, of the Christian faith. This is... The one thing that the Christian faith has trouble with, Peter has no trouble whatsoever with it here in chapter 4. Uh, so we have to admit there's a lot of evil in the world. Um, there's un unbelievable pain, uh, suffering for some. You've known good Christian folks who have suffered, uh, some for a long time. Uh, we have to admit that, and so we have to face that. You know, the, the Old Testament saints at times would ask, why do the uh, wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? 
and not many people uh, can come to the in the midst of suffering come to where Job is naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll return uh, the Lord gave the Lord taketh away blessed be the name of the Lord not many get there uh, but Peter says don't you worry our God is a faithful creator uh, you just keep doing what's right. This is how he ends this. So let's look at verse 12. Beloved. So he's writing to his uh, his loved people, his, uh, as we saw in, in the beginning, those who've been dispersed. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Wouldn't you say that's what, that's the, that's what happens to most Christians when they kind of get in trouble on the issue of suffering. They're surprised. It takes them by surprise, and it's some strange thing. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Um, last word in verse 15. Anybody got a new American? What does it say? It is meddler in the new American. Okay. Anybody else have a different word? Okay. Busybody. Aha. What is that? that, NIV? Huh? King James. Okay. Yeah. It's a very obscure word. It's the only place it's used, uh, at least in our Bibles. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let, us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says, look, don't think, don't think it's strange. Uh, the word... As he, as he does verse 12, the word surprised and the word strange that he uses both times, the root is just the, the word of a foreigner. Uh, the, uh, uh, don't be surprised. These happenings, these fiery trials come are not foreign to the Christian life. It's not an anomaly. It's not incongruous with being a child of God. Don't think that way, he says. It's an integral part of our life with Christ. It's come to test us. It's come to test you. Uh, it's not a strange thing. Don't question God's providence. Uh, if we hold to his providence, uh, don't question him when his try, these unexpected uh, suffering or su unexpected events happen that mess up our plans. Uh, don't blame.
blame him because he didn't prevent it? Could he have? Of course. But uh, he's in control, and he has the power to shield us, but our trials are not for no reason at all. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice though in, in your salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious, precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you, God is at work in our life. He's accomplishing his purposes. And though we suffer for a moment, it's only for a little while. And his goal is not our destruction, but our redemption. He's strengthening our faith through our suffering. But we have to believe that. We have to take life as it comes to us and know that God is working uh, for our glory. Paul, though our outer nature is wasting away, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This slight momentary affliction. And if you know Paul, as he writes 2 Corinthians and the lists that he has, uh, the two different lists of the trials of his life, you say, well, slight momentary affliction, Paul. But he's looking at it eternally, from an eternal perspective, not a temporal perspective. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are unseen or that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We need an eternal perspective, not just a temporal, everyday perspective, although each day is important. Each situation is important. But God is at work in us, and the God who redeems us in chapter 1, we saw that uh, our souls are more valuable than gold. Uh, and so gold is refined by the fire. We're refined by these fiery trials. And when evil and suffering becomes a problem, when trials come, we begin to question God. We forget or we've not learned two different things. One is we haven't learned the character of God. Whatever God does is right. We need a, uh, I don't remember one of the commentaries, a profound understanding of who God is to be able to endure these in a way that continues through us on the path of sanctification, looking forward to the day when we see Christ. So we need a profound understanding of the character of God and profound trust in his goodness. We lose that if in the hard times our faith wavers or we question God. If you don't start with whatever God does is right, you're going to have trouble when these strange uh, foreign events happen. 
in, our li- in your life, my life. And the second thing we forget is how serious sin is. The sinfulness of sin. Yes, maybe we didn't sin to cause the trial, but we're not angels. We, uh, we have our issues. And so we forget about the seriousness of sin. And the world is full of sin. Whether we commit sin or our neighbor commits sin or uh, whoever, we're living in a world that is still fallen and sinful. So when we, uh, when we either forget the character of God or, and the sinfulness or seriousness of sin, Either we forget it or we haven't learned it. And so the, the Anthony Flew, whoever uh, uh, is, is rejecting God for this reason, uh, even some Christians believe that if God is good, they assume that if God is good, he has to be all loving to all people. And so the question is, why does good God have to love evil people? What, what, where does it come from that God, is, a good God is loving to everyone? Uh, he loves evil people in some respects. Uh, his common grace, his compassion, his goodness, his generosity, people. All kinds of people, evil people, enjoy that. Uh, And yet, uh, he is angry with sin every day. God is a righteous judge and and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 7, 11. We have no claim on the love of God, on the goodness of God. We wouldn't be here without the love of God. No one would be. He loves us, of course, not because of anything in us or anything that we've done. It's mercy and grace. And so Peter says, look, don't think it's strange. In fact, verse 13, but rejoice. Sounds like James at chapter 1. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Here's the purpose, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Again, He's pointing us forward to when Christ's glory is revealed. Our suffering comes as a result of our fellowship, our identity with Christ. We suffer because He suffered and calls us to join him in his suffering. It's redemptive. His suffering is redemptive. Ours is not. And in, in our suffering, we bear witness to his, uh, the glory, uh, to his glory. Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And of course, there's nothing lacking in the passion of Christ and in, in Jesus' sufferings and uh, his humiliation in, in the cross. But he's invited us to uh, taste his suffering with him to the extent that we share, we have a share of his sufferings. 
This should not come as bewilderment. This shouldn't bewilder us. This should not flummox us. This should not uh, put us in a bad state. It should, we sh- I mean, you know, uh, this, oh, the old saying, we're all either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or about to go into one. Life is a series of uh, storms, of setbacks, of 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 going forward and then stepping back at times. Uh, but it's come, whatever comes to us is come to bring us to rejoicing, to, to, to know that God is at work in us. You know, Paul, I, I give up all these things that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And we want to know God. We want to know the power of his resurrection, but Paul says also comes with that is the sh- to share in his sufferings, learning, becoming like him in his death. So that, again, Paul points this to the future, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've obtained it already, he says, but I press on. Anything? Verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If we suffer, we're blessed by God. Uh, The spirit of God rests upon us. That reminded me of the Beatitude, of course. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're bearing the name of Christ. Verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You want, we bear the name of Christ uh, as, as a Christian. Peter says, Verse 15, he's really saying what I'm teaching here about suffering and the purpose of suffering and, and is not uh, that I'm not talking about. It doesn't apply to the consequences of sin. But you who are bearing the name of Christ, he says, let none of you be guilty of these sins that he's listed. Uh, don't complain. There are consequences to sin. Sin is serious. And then he talks about the, he lists sins here, murder, thief, or an evildoer. Well, uh, those are punishable by law, and God has ordained the authorities uh, to deal with these sins here. And so uh, the sense in which if you get thrown in jail for breaking the law, he says, Don't let that happen if you're bearing the name of Christ. Your witness will be damaged. Your witness will be uh, harmed. Uh, 
don't they don't bear the sword in vain, but to punish these wrongdoers. They're they're just that's their calling from God as your author, as the authorities. Meddlers, there's again, as I said, that's a not sure what that word is. Tony, what you say? Uh, not meddler. What'd you say? Busybodies. Yeah. Hmm. And they say what? Okay, so the context points us towards busybodies or meddlers, but it's a word that just not sure <coughs> uh, what it means. But in in the context here, they're saying it points us to meddlers, uh, a busybody, you know, intruding into other people's lives, interrupting their lives, uh, disrupting the peace. Hmm. Hmm. Just someone who gets in other people's business where they don't belong and disturbs the peace. Huh? Drama. <laughs> Drama. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, you know, it. Uh, uh, they disrupt the harm, harmony of the church, harmony in families, uh, communities. And then I would say also here includes these physical trials. Uh, uh, don't, uh, if your physical situation, if, if your health is gone because of sin, is what he's saying. You, you, you're bearing the name of Christ. Again, we're going to get sick. Our bodies are going to get old and they're going to wear out. But don't let it be because of sin. Because we're bearing the name of Christ and our witness, our testimony uh, uh, about as we testify that we are Christians, uh, calling ourselves Christians, we bring reproach upon Christ. We bring reproach upon the power of the gospel. We confuse uh, uh, the gospel. We confuse other people concerning the gospel. And our witness becomes of no effect if our life doesn't back it up. So let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. How many times is Christian used in the New Testament? Not a trick. I mean, I, I looked. I I didn't know how few times it's used. It's used in Antioch, right? The first time they were called Christians was at Antioch in Acts eleven, and some years later, fifteen years later or so, Herod Agrippa, the second, the second Herod Agrippa, uh, kind of mocks Paul or or chides Paul. You're going to make persuade me to be a Christian in this short of a time. And here, that's only three times it's used. And there's that sense in which Christian is a 
um, what a derogatory or it, it evokes ridicule in the Bible. Um, it's used as an accusation almost. The unbelievers tagged the Christians in Antioch, or the pe- the people of the way, the disciples, the followers of Christ. The unbelievers tagged them as Christians. Um, Agrippa mocks Paul about trying to make him a Christian. And here, these uh, suffering as a Christian, there's almost a sense in which there's a derogatory con- connotation uh, with the idea in, here in the first century. Peter's writing in the time of Nero. Nero persecutes the Christians. And uh, Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian, but praise God that you bear his name. Uh, Wear the name of Christ proudly. If we're ashamed of Christ, we're going to become cowardly. If we're praising God, we're going to be more bold. Uh, Peter's encouraging, don't back down. Don't back off our witness. Praise Him. Glorify Him. Trusting in Him through sickness, through trial, which will lead us into confidence. Made me think of, well, no, I I, I was reading in one of the commentaries, but made me think of uh, what's happened just in a number of 40 years in our culture where, uh, well, I'll just read what Kistemacher says. When the Christian faith permeates a society, one of its effects is that the Christian name is a title of respect. It's writing, he wrote this in the 80s. At times... Politicians seeking votes among their constituents point out that they are church-attending Christians. Many people are of the opinion that if they're known and recognized as Christians, they improve their status and promote their influence in a Christian community. When Christian faith permeates, I'm trying to think about how to say this, when Christian faith permeates a society, um, then he goes, but when Christians are a minority group in society, they frequently are the objects of scorn, reproof, attack, and even persecution. They take the brunt of the devil's fury directed against the followers of Christ. In the early church, the bold confession, I am a Christian, was often heard on the lips of martyrs in their suffering, they praised God in the early church because they were a minority. They stood out. What's happened here? What's happened now? You know, the moral minority in the first century turned the world upside down for Christ. There were few of them, and they were accused, at least in Thessalonica, of turning the world upside down Uh, for Christ, and the gospel spread like it did in so few years. 
and this is not what Kistemacher said, so you'll, you'll help me with my, how I wrote this out. But when the name Christian loses its meaning, what does it mean when we say we're Christian today? What do people hear? Uh, you know, again, uh, the, the, the Mormon knock, uh, Jehovah's Witness who knocked on my door, you know, and you talk to him and say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, I am too. But what does it mean? I mean, you almost have to define it, right? So we get born-again Christians. We get evangelical Christians. We, we you know... Uh, uh, we, we don't, it, it's hard to say Jesus, we want to say, uh, Leslie Smith, when he used to come, he would never say Jesus, just talking about Jesus, he would always say either Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ, he felt like he had to define it because Jesus just, and and Christian has just lost its meaning, hasn't it? I mean, what is a Christian? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the the polls show we're still about 70% Christian in America. You wonder about that, right? I mean, I don't know who they poll, but but then they, they got to define it for them, for you. In our Monday class, I read a headline. Uh, the majority of born-again Christians do not believe Jesus was sinless. Think about that for a minute. The majority of born-again Christians don't believe Jesus was sinless. What do we, how do we respond to that? They can't be Christians, can they? <laughs> yeah, so uh, they didn't just poll anybody who claimed to be a Christian. They polled born-again Christians. And so now you got an adjective that's redundant to what the word Christian means. No such thing as uh, not born-again Christian. That would be a dead Christian, right? But you got this, you, you begin to try to redefine, and then there's so much confusion. A born-again Christian, not just Christian, but born-again Christian, Jesus didn't. Jesus was not sinless. That's where we are. And so, but when the name Christian loses its meaning, when it's watered down to mean my definition when I was 20 years, 21 years old, the definition of Christian was American, um, a moral person who was part of the moral majority, right? I mean, what does that mean? Um, uh, 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 my word, crino, a, a Christian in name only, but identifying as Christian. When this happens, faithful believers, the remnant who are pursuing holiness, will then begin to take the brunt of the scorn. Because again, like, like in the first century when the Christians, those who identified as Christians, as followers of Christ, whatever name you put on them, we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a minority. 
and they were scorned. Now, if we try to live faithfully as Christians, I almost put an adjective. I don't want to put an adjective there. Live as Christians. Um, we're going to take the scorn. We're the ones who are evil. We're the ones who are uh, bad people. But it's all for a different reason in that um, uh, not, it's not because we identify as Christians, it's because we identify, our life identifies us as Christians. We're a different type of Christian than what they understand Christian to be. So I don't know if that makes any sense, if that's just, that's just some of what is going on. And how it's changed. You know, I mean, uh, Donald Trump made sure we knew we went, he went to church, right? Barack made sure, Barack Obama made sure we knew he went to church. I'm not sure sure how much longer that identification as a churchgoer is going to help a politician. But it's been the history of American politics, but so many have become political Christians, right? Cultural Christians. And the term Christian has been watered down. And in many ways, so that we're not scorned, we begin to kind of back down a little bit uh, and don't stand up like we should, maybe. So... Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. Stand up, bear the name proudly. Bear the name faithfully. And suffer to the glory of God, looking to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God at the temple of God. And if it begins with us, which it has, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? If the righteous are scarcely, barely, if it's up to almost up to the point to where the right can't be, uh, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And in a sense, that at this point, in this con- it's a rhetorical question. Um, you know, the Old Testament prophet said, the people chosen by God who sinned uh, would not go unpunished. The chosen of God would not go unpunished for their sin. And so uh, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. The southern kingdom was taken into captivity because the chosen people of God rebelled against God. Here, uh, what Peter says about uh, 
it's time for judgment to begin at the household to God. If it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who, who do not obey the gospel? If the righteous are scarcely saved, uh, what will become of the ungodly? Uh, Peter's readers here, they're God's chosen. Uh, they're brought under a judgment of type, a judgment uh, the judgment could either result in discipline or approval. God has begun with judging the church. We're being purified. We're being strengthened. Sins are being eliminated as God deals with us. Holiness is growing. And the righteous are scarcely saved. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Or Acts 14, Paul uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But then he also speaks about those, the ungodly, who neither worship God or love him, the sinners who are transgressing his commands. They'll be judged, but it'll bring eternal judgment. They'll be condemned, uh, the ungodly and the sinners. And then verse 19, therefore, so he closes, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good, while doing good. Um, so since 12 through 18 is true, he says, therefore, make sure you haven't brought suffering on yourself. If you have, confess your sin, repent. Uh, trust God to forgive you of your sin. Know sometimes, he says, sometimes it's God's will that we suffer contrary to, you know, uh, the prosperity gospel. Uh, and then when this suffering happens, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Or, uh, New American, entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. can be read, I don't know, uh, ESV points us directly to us doing good while we're entrusting our souls. Or, New American kind of lets it go either way, and I, uh, Corey may have been able to study it out, sussed it out better, whether or not it says we entrust our faithful, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator who always does what's right. As New American says, a creator in doing what is right. It's kind of an ambiguous, to me it looked like an ambiguous uh, word, order, and, and statement. So it doesn't matter. Either way, we entrust our soul to God. Whatever he does is right, yes. We entrust our souls to God, and we continue doing right in the midst, knowing that he's got a purpose for us. Our, it's our vocation, if you will, as Christians. It's our calling. Uh, and 
if you know those who've gone through deep suffering, gone through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, they're usually strong, faithful, confident Christians in God's care. So if he calls us to suffer, we commit ourselves to him. He's not a vengeful God. He is a faithful creator. It's hard to believe sometimes in the midst of the storm, but we may gain from these fiery trials. So the, go back to the objection. We're going to, we have to close. The objection is if God is all good and he, he will defeat evil, If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. God is all-good and all-powerful. Evil is not yet defeated, therefore God doesn't exist. That's kind of the objection to Christianity. Here's one answer to that. If God is all-good, he will defeat evil. And if God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. Uh, God is all-good and all-powerful, right? Evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, we know evil will be defeated because God is all good and all powerful. So uh, I don't know how that is one of the apologetic objections answered uh, to the problem of evil. There's other ways that different apologists will answer that. Um, But turn to Psalm 130 real quick. We sing, I will wait for you. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So when we get in the depths, are you in the depths of despair or uh, uh, right now? Well, verse 1 and 2 says, cry out to the Lord. Verse 3 and 4, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. So are you suffering because of sin? Confess your sin and trust God to forgive you of your sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In this, in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Are you waiting for God? See, that's the atheist's problem. The atheist hasn't waited long enough. Those who are saying God has not done away with evil yet are impatient. They want to tell God when to do what they want Him to do and what they expect Him to do. Here, uh, I will wait for you, O Lord. If you're waiting for God, get encouragement from Him and from others. And then 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful uh, redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Are you brought out of the storm? I'll encourage someone else who's in it, in one. Comfort with the comfort with which you've been comforted.
and God will bless you. Father, we thank you. We thank you that nothing happens to us, your people, without a purpose. Lord, I pray for those who are, may not be Christians here. We know most of us are, but not. we don't know if all. Lord, as they hear, as the person reads, help them know that the promises apply to the, only to those who are in Christ Jesus for the security, for the promised blessing, the promised judgment is theirs. Lord, make us faithful Christians, bold, courageous, not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of you, willing to take uh, heat for living contrary to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.